think the really important thing is the checking that assumption of like, you can build a big team if that's what you want and that's what you love and that's what you want to do, but that shouldn't be the default decision, right? Like you shouldn't say the only way I can scale is if I have a big team because there are so many other alternatives. Every decision you make in one area of your business affects other areas of your business. We often tend to think of the different areas of our business as individual silos, marketing, finance, operations, our team. We view them as each being inside their own box. But in actuality, business doesn't really work that way. It's an ecosystem. Every part of your business affects the other areas of your business because they're all interconnected. The decisions you make about the kind of business model you have affect how you market your business. Those decisions also affect the size and roles of the team you wanna have, the software you need to use, and all of that in turn affects how profitable your company ultimately is. And you could turn it right back around the other way. Maybe you have a vision about the size of company you wanna run. Maybe you don't want a team. Well. That decision affects the kinds of products and services you can offer, the business model that fits you best, the software you need to use, because it's all connected. I'm Susan Bowles, and you're listening to Break the Ceiling, the show where we break down unconventional strategies you can use to save time, boost your profit, and increase your operational capacity. So if all the parts of your business are interconnected, and the decisions you make in one area of your business affect the other areas of your business. That means the quality of your decisions matter even more. And this is the reason you'll always hear me emphasizing considering both your values and your data, because they both need to come into play in order for you to make the right decisions for you. Each decision you make in your business is like stacking a brick onto the foundation of your business. You're building what your business really is, one decision, one brick at a time. So it's important that they move you towards both a healthy, sustainable business and one that you want to run. If you've listened to the show for any length of time, you've probably heard me talk about default decisions. This idea that sometimes the decisions we make in our business happen by default, either because we didn't know there was an alternative, or we didn't realize we were making a choice, or because our choices seem to be limited based on our experience or our industry. And the reason I talk about default decisions so much is because of this idea that our decisions matter. The choices we make in our business matter. They impact not just the business we end up building, but how well it runs, how much we like running it, and whether or not it's sustainable. Sometimes, how well your business operates or how much you like running it can come down to a single key decision. Something like choosing to package your services or shifting to a retainer model or even starting to take credit cards can have a huge impact. And that's why I want you to be making choices consciously, not by default, because they matter. So, Today, we're going to talk more about this idea of default decisions and how the decisions you make in one area of your business affect all those other areas. My guest today is Ashley Gartland. She's a business coach who helps people simplify and streamline their business. And she's actually been on the show before back in January. Now, Ashley and I have a lot of the same beliefs and values when it comes to running businesses. We both have very small teams. 
We really value systems and we do our best to operate as efficiently and effectively as possible. Ashley and I decided we wanted to have a conversation about this idea of default decisions and how we each saw the concept play out in our own businesses and in our work with clients. So we decided to invite our audiences and have a live conversation about it. So today's episode is a little bit different format than normal and slightly longer than a normal episode. Ashley and I each brought a few examples from our work where we've seen business owners get tripped up with default decisions. So it's not really an interview as much as you getting to listen in on our conversation around this idea. I am really passionate about uh, examining kind of the choices that you are making in your business, because really when you understand why you're making choices, that enables you to potentially decide to make a different choice. So default decisions are really the choices you are making in your business that maybe you don't notice that you're making. So they come from kind of your preconceived notions about how your business should run. Um, So we all come into business with experience, either from the industry we came in from or other experience or just our beliefs in general. And they can really color our view of what you're supposed to do, how you set up your business, what your business model is. All of those kind of come from a place of our experience. And oftentimes we don't realize that those are the choices that we're making because we don't really know anything different. So if you ask yourself kind of, why are you making a specific choice? Um, Why did you you did. Why did you pick your software? Why did you pick your business model? Why are you operating the way that you're operating? And if you ask yourself why, and your answer is, well, I don't know, or because we've always done it that way, or because that's just how our industry operates, you know, that's a really good indication that the choice was made by default. It was something that you just kind of assumed was supposed to be the way that it is. So, These default decisions really can affect pretty much every area of your business. They affect your business model. They affect how easy it is for your business to operate. Um, And I have a really good example of this. So a few years ago, I was doing a software implementation with a digital marketing agency. So we were implementing a project management tool that connected to their finances. We kept running into an issue because they were calculating their margin kind of weird. Um, They weren't doing it in a way like traditional computer systems expect you to calculate margin. And so we were having to create all of these weird custom workarounds, maybe so much more expensive. And when I asked them, you know, why, why are you doing it this way? What, what's, what's behind this choice? The answer was that the, one of the founders actually came out of the television industry and that this is how they had calculated ad rates in the television industry. Now, they were in a digital like advertising firm. They had nothing to do with TV advertising, but because one of the founders came from, a, from this specific industry, and that's how they did it in the industry, that's just how they decided to do it in their business now, even though totally unrelated fields. But that decision was causing them so uh, such a huge headache. We were spending more money on fancier software. They had more operations people than they needed because they couldn't automate it. They couldn't take advantage of the computer systems and all of the automation that comes with that. So if you can kind of uh, overcome your default decisions, it can open you up to new, better, more effective, more profitable ways of running your business. So that's kind of 
my, my short and sweet summary on default decisions and why they matter. And over the course of this conversation, Ashley and I are each going to share kind of three common ones that we see in our work um, and how that might affect your business. So Ashley, you want to kick us off? Yeah, I just want to say one more thing about kind of the definition too. I just want to like really bring this point home for people is that when you're making default decisions, it can be so limiting and yet you don't even know that you're not operating from a place of possibility in your business. So I see so many people struggling with their services and like, I'm not really liking them and I don't like how my business is running or struggling with the amount of hours that they're working or thinking they have to use certain tools and systems they really don't have to use. That's because they're making default decisions. Like you said, they're based on the assumptions that they're making or they're just kind of borrowing from other people's models instead of taking a moment to pause and say like, what do I really want this to look like? What's going to be in the best service of me? And when you do that, you start making your decisions from a place of discernment, that's where you get to build a business that fits you, that gets the results you want, that scales smart, that allows you to work less. Like, and that's why I'm so excited about this conversation. So fired up what we're going to be sharing here. So yes, so like Susan said, we're each going to be sharing Three common ones that we see. Um, there are certainly more, but these are the kind of the big points that we wanted to touch on. So I'm going to kick things off with the first one, which was assuming that the cookie cutter business model in your industry is your only option, or like the industry standard is your only option. And what I want to say first there is like this is really normal. If you're getting into the online space or you're getting into business for the you know first time, it's really normal for you to take a look around and say okay, what else is going on here? Like, what are people doing? How are they delivering the service? How are they working with people? And to kind of build your first packages from that, you know, from kind of borrowing from what's working for other people. But there comes a point where you are going to want to take a look at those and refine them and streamline them and make sure that they fit the way that you want to work and the way that you want to live to like make sure that those services actually fit your life. So when we are just borrowing from other people, we're kind of negating that fact. And what I like to do when I'm doing work to help people streamline their services and design them in a way that suits their life is really start from a place of possibility and start by asking some questions. So I actually like to start with the life stuff first because that's totally my jam. And I like to ask like, what are your lifestyle goals? Like how much do you want to be working? How much time off do you want to have? How do you like to work? Like, do you like to work with people in a deep dive or do you like to work with people for a year and have that like deep immersive partnership? Like, and we really start to think through those things because the sky's the limit and it really has to be about figuring out how they want to work. So we ask those questions about lifestyle, about hours worked, about the way they like to work. I definitely have a revenue conversation here. We want to make sure that their services are matching and the pricing is matching their revenue goals. And I like to ask about client experience. Like what do they think is going to give their clients the best experience and results? And what's really fun here is how often I see people all of a sudden saying, Know the industry standard is kind of broken. That model, I can see how it's not working for people, and I want to try something different. And that's where some real like innovation and fun services come out. So a couple of examples just to kind of make this really tangible for you guys. I think coaching is such a great example because you can be a business coach, a finance coach, um, a health coach. And what's really common there is for people to get started and they're like, I'm going to do one-on-one or I'm going to do groups. And those are the only two things that they can really see as possibilities. They can't see, A, that they could do those things in a really different way. They could do one-on-one or they could do groups in a really different way. Or they might break into some really kind of untapped areas like doing coaching intensives or doing boxer coaching, which is something I've experimented with. 
Um, I've seen other coaches do masterminds completely by email, which is like completely thinking outside the box. And then there's all these hybrid models. So I think when you like get locked into this idea of first I do one-on-one and then I scale with groups and this is the only way it can look, you end up building a business that's a match for someone else, but not you. When you ask yourself, how do I want to work? You start to see that you can bring in some of these other types of services or shift to some of those types of services and get to a really good place. So that was one example I wanted to share. Second example, I work with a lot of copywriters just because that was my initial business and was in the, the freelance writing world and copywriting world. And what I see there is that done for you is the go-to. They're like, people need help with writing. And the only way I can help them is to just take it off their plate and do it for them. And that can certainly work. And if that's your cup of tea, then that makes sense to go that path. But what I see with a lot of my clients is they're like, I'm a really great coach. or I'm a really great teacher. And so it makes more sense for them to come up with a course or a group program. Or I have a client right now who's just killing it doing copy coaching where she's doing um, coaching intensives people to teach them how to write great sales copy or she's doing long-term partnerships to help them and mentor them to write their own sales copy. So that's working amazing for her. I have another client who's doing a productized service that allows her to do copy very um, tight and efficient way so she can work with a lot of clients in less time and that's been phenomenal for her. So hopefully that guys is brainstorming. I think what's really important here is if you're like, my services are okay or my services are like, I just am not loving them right now, is to go back to that question and be like, what am I assuming here that I have to do? And if I took those assumptions away, what are the possibilities here for me to explore? So Susan, do you want to add anything there? I know you do a lot with business models too. I think the the real uh, key that I see folks stumble on here is there's an element of like giving yourself permission to do things differently. You know, a lot of our notions are based off of either what we see thing people doing, um, but a lot of it is just saying, hey, this is my business. I get to pick what it looks like and giving yourself permission to be creative and to literally think of something that nobody else has has thought of yet. You know, there's no encourage you to look for um, business models outside of your industry. Yes. You know, a lot of the times there's a lot of competitive advantage in taking a, you know, industry standard business model in one industry and applying it to a new industry where that's not, that was never a thing. <laughs> um, there's a lot of power there. So, Take your sources of kind of inspiration from everywhere. Don't feel like you're limited to your industry, your, your niche. Yeah, I just saw a brilliant business model last night. Um, we're redoing our backyard, so we're looking at landscaping services, and I found someone who had beautifully figured out how to do it virtually, like had taken the virtual model from so many online businesses. I was like, I'm going to apply it to the landscape industry, and I was like, this is brilliant. And there's no way they came up with that by looking at what other landscape architects were doing. Yeah, similarly, I just saw a uh, photographer that is offering online photo shoots. Like, literally, you can do family photo shoots, brand photo shoots, um, and they do it using, like, your phone and a photographer on the other end, like, talking you through the shots, and then they edit it. And um, it was just totally out-of-the-box kind of ideas where you're applying these new concepts and can create, like, really a competitive advantage because you're the only one doing that. Yeah, especially right now, right? When people want yeah. to do franchises, they can't. Like, I'm sure that this came, that probably creativity came from the constraints of this time. So I love that. Yes, I love, I love constraints. Constraints are great. <laughs> Very good for creativity. Um, okay, so the next one I kind of want to talk about is this 
notion that time and materials or billing by the hour is either the best way or the only way to go. So a lot of my work with clients has to do with their finances because, well, that's pretty much, <laughs> that's one of the main things that we work on. Um, and the decision of how to bill your clients and how to accept payments is one that can really have a big impact both on your cash flow, on your revenue, but also on your workflow. And this is one where I see a lot of folks get tripped up thinking that they, there are no other options. They have to bill hourly because that's what the industry expects um, or that's what their clients expect and that that's the only way to go. So I wanna kind of talk you through an example here. So if you look at the kind of typical workflow for time and materials billing, right? So first you do a proposal, you accept the proposal, maybe you take a deposit and you have to send an invoice for that, right? Then you have to track your time because if you're not tracking your time and you're not tracking your team's time, you can't bill for it. So you have to have a system that tracks your time and your materials against your specific project. Then once you've done the work, you have to have a system, either a person or a technology, that can take that time and turn it into an invoice. Then you have to have a system to send the invoice to your client. Then you have to have another system to accept payment. Either they're sending you checks, please don't do this, um, but I've seen it happen. Uh, you know, they're sending you checks and then you have to go deposit the check and that's an extra step. Or um, you're literally just waiting for them to pay. Right. So you send them the invoice. It's out in the ether and you're just kind of hoping that they actually do. If they don't pay you, though, you have to go track them down to get them to pay you. There's the risk that maybe they won't. And that is a very long, very complex workflow to streamline or make efficient if you decide that, wow, that's taking me a whole bunch of time and I'm not getting paid very regularly. So contrast that kind of with having a package service or a retainer with a set price. There are lots of benefits to that. One, you know how much it'll cost up front and so do your clients. So better for everybody because they can budget to actually pay you the whole amount and it's less emotional for you to sell because it's just a thing. You know, here's the thing, you don't have to, you know, hem and haw about how much it costs or, you know, what it's going to include. It just is. Um, but because that sort of package allows you to know upfront how much it's going to cost, that is a totally different workflow. Because if you do upfront or like recurring automatic billing, the workflow kind of goes like this. Here's the thing. They buy it. They pay you and they either pay you upfront or they sign up for automatic payments that just kind of happen. And that's literally the entire workflow contrasted to that really big, long, complicated workflow. And so you've really short-circuited a lot of your administration by making one really simple tweak to say, I'm not going to bill by time and materials. I'm going to bill upfront or automatically. And not only does it streamline your operations, but it also actually improves your cash flow because they are going to pay you on automatic payment or they're going to pay you before you do the work. So it eliminates a lot of the risk, a lot of the headache, and also allows you to manage your cash flow. So this is a default decision that I see so many of my clients making that is an easy swap for them that has huge impacts on actually really every area of their operations and finances. Yeah, Susan, when you talk about, I think that I'm so on board with this, like this is how I run my business, this is how I see people being so successful with theirs, is moving to like the retainer model or kind of productized services or packages. 
Um, but I think the hesitancy for people is like, oh my gosh, then they could, I could be end up working twice as much. I have not found that to be true at all, but I think they're like, the concern there is if I go on retainer there, I'm going to be overworking myself. Have you heard that from your clients? Oh, sure. Absolutely. There's always a ton of hesitancy around this. And there are kind of two different directions that you can go. Um, one, you go with a retainer with very firm boundaries. You know, these are, this is what's in scope. This is what's out of scope. If you do this, that'll be extra. Um, or you have packaged add-ons that you can add to your packages. Um, the other option that is usually kind of a nice transition, or if you are somebody who really um, can't do packaged very well. So an example of this is like custom software development. Sometimes you really have no idea how long it's going to take because until you actually start the work, you don't know what headaches you're going to run into, where you're going to run into problems. And so those kinds of projects are really, really difficult to come up with like, here's the flat price. There's a lot of risk involved with that. So one of the solutions that I like recommending to people is kind of a concept of a refillable retainer. And this is basically, it, it's a little bit of a hybrid, but if you are kind of baby stepping into packages, it's a nice kind of transitional step. And the concept here is that you take whatever you would have kind of given them as the estimate for time and materials, and you kind of get as close as you can to a ballpark. They pay that up front as a retainer that you then basically work your hours, you bill your hours against that retainer. And if they go over a little bit, you can invoice them extra. If you uh, are under a little bit, you can roll it over to the next time you're invoicing them. But this is something that allows you to do, you know, you are getting paid before you're actually doing the work and really minimizes the risk at the end. Um, so even if you decide not to bill every month and just, you know, at the end of this project or the end of your work together, you do one final like audit billing and say, okay, great. You know, we were just a little bit, over, here's another, you know, four hours that we need to bill you. Um, but it really minimizes the risk and you get a lot of the same benefits of working off of a retainer or upfront billing uh, without having to be exact, <laughs> you know, minimize the risk a little bit in terms of your estimate. And then you can kind of use that and track your time against those kinds of projects until you have enough data that you've kind of been doing the same kind of project over and over and you have a really good idea of how long it's going to take you and your team, how much effort is going to be in there. And then you can kind of move that into, okay, we're very confident that this is what it's going to be. Here's the package. Here's what it includes. And here's the price. Yeah. And it matches. I think that that's really a good point that like sometimes you, you're kind of at the beginning, you are throwing spaghetti at the wall a little bit. Like oh, you're yeah. making you know, an informed decision. You're saying this is roughly how much I think it's going to take. Um, I can definitely say this with my coaching packages. Now, after four years doing them, I'm like, okay, I know roughly how much each client's time is going to take with our calls and outside of our calls with reviews and those types of things. And I can estimate, you know, how much, how many retainer clients I basically I can take on at a time. And it's not a perfect science, but you have super users and you have people who use it pretty lightly, the in-between stuff. And it averages out so that I'm always able to get my work done in 25 hours a week. So it's really interesting. Um, that once you start playing around with it, then like you said, you can adjust, you can figure out what exactly is going to be in the scope and you can make sure the price matches and the hours match and then move forward from there. So I love that. Yeah. And I think once you um, get your behind the scenes process, like the process you use to deliver your services, the more defined and uh, kind of, I call it productized, but the more defined process that you have for delivering each one of your services, mm -hmm. uh, the more efficient you get and the better 
data you have. So um, then as you start moving into fixed, fixed price services, the more profitable you actually get because yes. then you're um, in a traditional like time and materials billing. You'll see this a lot with like lawyers or accountants. Um, the incentives are, the financial incentives are really misaligned with the value de you're delivering your clients. So, you know, if you're billing time and materials, your incentive is actually to take as long as possible to do the thing that you're trying to do, which is totally counterintuitive to actually like delivering great customer service. So the closer you can get to fixed fee kind of packages, um, there's a lot, you know, that kind of realigns your financial incentive because you as a provider, the more efficient and effectively you deliver that service, the more profit you actually derive from it. So yeah. there's so many benefits to kind of thinking, thinking outside of the box with your pricing and um, packaging services. Yeah, and you can grow more without working more, which I know we're gonna get to, yes. but I'll let you move on to the next one. <laughs> Now what? That's the question I hear from a lot of service-based business owners. Maybe you've been asking yourself, now what too? You've built your business from the ground up and your business works, but maybe it's not growing. You keep bumping into a ceiling on how many clients you can take on and maybe how much money you can make. And maybe now you're even wondering if your business has staying power. You might be keenly aware of how small challenges could easily balloon into big problems as the market and the economy change. I help entrepreneurs decide how to take action so they can build more resilient business that's primed for growth. I combine strategic thinking with a background in business finance, data, and operations to see the patterns that have your business bumping against a growth ceiling. I'll show you exactly what you can do to break through and make more money all while making sure the foundation under your business is strong. I have a few new client openings for my quarterly or monthly advisory packages. When you work with me, I'll examine your financial reports to spot opportunities. We'll talk about where you're feeling friction and discover ways you can reclaim your time and attention. We'll dig into how to scale your operations without sacrificing quality so you can increase your capacity and make more money. And each action you take will be informed by strategic financial insight and data-driven operational planning. The result? You'll feel wildly capable and in control, and you'll finally break through that ceiling. Ready to learn more about working with me as your business advisor? Go to scalespark.co slash advisor. Okay, so the next one is kind of this concept of assuming that you should hire low-level administration people because, you know, on the surface, they seem cheaper versus using technology or more experienced people early on. And what I see happen so often is that, you know, when you're starting out, you're doing everything and you get this feeling of being very overwhelmed. And oftentimes the common kind of wisdom is, oh, you just need to hire people, right? And that's always the first trigger people tell you to pull is, oh, you're overwhelmed, you're too busy, uh, just, just go hire somebody. But the reality is that hiring is really expensive. Um, it is usually one of the biggest costs in any business is actually their team. And it's really, really hard to cut if you need to. So, you know, especially in this current scenario, um, if you had overhired, it's really, really hard to look somebody in the face on your team and say, I can't afford to pay you anymore. You know, because once you hire, 
other people are depending on you to provide for their families or to pay their house bill. And it is very difficult for anyone um, to look somebody in the eye and say, I can't pay you. I have to fire you. So I always recommend that hiring is actually, to me, is kind of the trigger of last resort because it's really hard to undo once you pull that trigger. But the other aspect is that, you know, unless you are actually prepared as a founder in terms of your team management um, and with relatively defined processes behind the scenes, if you have gotten, if you haven't gotten kind of all the stuff about how you run your business that's in your head, if you haven't gotten that out of your head into something, it can actually cause a bigger headache and more overwhelm when you hire somebody because then you have to worry about finding the right person, which takes time. You have to interview them or do test projects. You have to uh, train them so that they're effective. And that all takes a big chunk of your time. So on the surface, hiring isn't necessarily the best trigger. Um, using technology as an option, especially at the beginning of your business, is really cheap um, and also super easy to cut if you need to. You know, the software system out there is not going to have their feelings hurt because you're like, yo, I can't pay for you anymore. They're used to that. That's their business model. So in the long run, if you spend some time at the beginning using technology to automate things that um, there's a lot of parts of the operation and administration of your business that technology is great at. Um, setting up client folders when clients start with you or a lot of the accounting and invoicing process is a good example as well. That means that not only do you not have to do it, so it takes that off your plate, and later on when you do decide to hire, nobody else ever has to do that and the people that you hire can spend time doing much more valuable work. So. The other aspect of this is that when you do hire, especially at the beginning, there's real value with hiring very experienced people, especially if you are new to business or a new business owner. Sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And hiring, um, even if it's just for like um, an outsourced or working with contractors, those people, if you are hiring them for a specific thing, that's all they do. They are really, really, really good at it. And they know all of the, you know, places where most people get tripped up. So you don't have to train them. They can actually start training you. So you understand what they're doing. You understand that part of your business and you didn't have to go bootstrap it. So if you hire very experienced people at the beginning, uh, you don't, one, you don't have to manage them. Two, they'll actually train you a little bit. And so you get the kind of dual benefit of getting the best bang for the buck because you are literally taking advantage of somebody who is the best at doing that thing that you hired them to do. And you don't have to have that whole management headache. So an example of this means is kind of, uh, so I have a, I, one of my clients, he is a public speaker and he teaches courses and he I think his revenue is somewhere in like $750,000 a year. Um, but he went with the strategy of he actually didn't hire any employees and he hired very, very experienced people um, and let them do their job. So his team actually consists of him as the CEO. He has a COO kind of person who actually runs his operations. He works with me as his CFO. And then he has like two contractors that help him write content. And that's it. 
Um, he has a very, very lean team and very effective at doing what they're supposed to be doing because everybody's coming from a place of expertise. Um, so it can be very, very effective, especially at getting you a lot of traction very early on. Love it. Thank you for setting me up for the transition so beautifully to the, you don't need a big team to scale. But I wanted to touch on two things that you said there. Um, I totally agree. I think that when my clients come to me and they're very overwhelmed and overworked, they're like, I just need to hire a VA. I just need to hire an assistant. Like that's just what they're hearing. And they're totally ignoring the fact that it makes sense to get some systems in place first. And what I think trips people up is like, well, they're like, I don't know what systems I need, which we can fix. Or I don't, I'm not techie. I don't do software. I don't do systems. So I want to like also um, illuminate uh, an alternative, which is finding out what systems you need and hiring a contractor to help you set those systems up, train you on those, and then let those take the place of a hire in your business until you're ready to hire kind of that more experienced person. So I have quite a few clients who are like using a, like a Dubsado for their CRM and they're like, I don't get it. Like, I don't, it's not for me. I know it could work really well for me. I know it could automate a ton of things, but it's just not my, um, it's just not their strength to set it up. So there are people who that's their job. Like they, you can hire them for a Dubsado intensive. They can set it all up for you. You're set up and then the systems can take the place of, you know, a full-time hire or like a, a, you know, always available hire. So I think that's really um, just something that I wanted to touch on there, that there's kind of also these alternative things to think about. Yeah. You actually uh, kind of reminded me of another aspect. So like you were saying, most people hire a VA or they hire like a bookkeeper and that's going to fix their problems. Um, but the reality is that most of these folks, unless they're specialized, are entry level people. They are going to uh, execute process that has already been defined. So like a bookkeeper, a bookkeeper is designed to classify the data in your finances. They're not really there. There are a few now that are kind of starting to do this, but they're not really there to do financial advisory, which is what a lot of people, you know, they want a bookkeeper to tell them what to do, but that's not the function of a bookkeeper. Um, and that's kind of the distinction between operating with a bookkeeper versus operating with somebody like um, an accountant that does advisory or like a virtual CFO, where some of them may do bookkeeping, but their goal is to do advisory, use that data in a more effective way. Similarly, VAs, um, may be there to help you define your process, but that's not all of them. They're not all there um, to be able to like pull what's out of your brain. They might just be there to execute a checklist that you already have. Um, so think through kind of that level of expertise versus um, like Ashley was saying, somebody who is experienced in a particular system or experienced with helping you select the right system um, that to me is an example of somebody who is an expert that you get a lot of value out of hiring an expert, get your systems, get your foundations and your processes set up. And then that is the thing that allows you to hire that lower level person to execute the process that an expert has helped you design. Yeah. And then it works really well. And I think yes, like that, that is the, that is yeah. the sequence where you define your systems, then you can bring in the low level person to execute it. Yeah, I see. And it can be hiring, you know, someone to help you set them up. I have plenty of clients who it's just about creating their SOPs and it's about literally like recording their processes and then passing it off. And there's a little bit of a transition stage, right? Where you're like bringing someone new on board, but I completely agree that it is so much better to do it that way than to be like, I'm hiring. This is a hot mess. You figure it out. So yes. um, 
So we're and, not talking hiring. And as like, somebody who has been the, this is a hot mess, help us figure it out. It's so much, that takes a lot more um, strategy and big picture vision to help you figure out the process than to execute it. Yeah. So I love this topic. So we're going to keep talking about team. Um, the, the assumption that I wanted to dig into was assuming that you need a big team to scale. So I ran my first business as a solopreneur, like pretty much no help. Um, I was a freelance food writer. So occasionally my husband would do the grocery shopping for the recipe testing. And like, that was the extent of help. Looking back, I can see so many places where I could have used some help and it would have allowed me to scale the business, but I just couldn't see it then. And I think the reason that I didn't want to scale or didn't want to like build a team then is because I didn't see myself in that role. I was like, I don't see myself as the manager. I don't see myself, I don't want an agency. Like that's not what I want this to look like. Um, and I just, I didn't want to grow the big team and then have this business that I hated. Like, so I think people either, they hear that they need this big team to scale and they decide I'm just not going to scale because I don't want that or they do it and they don't like how their business ends up looking. So I want to propose an alternative, which is that you can build like a very small and mighty team for yourself with people taking, like having those very expert people on your team and having them take ownership of complete tasks. And that can be a really beautiful model for a team that keeps it really lean and really intentional and allows you to scale. So what I like to do with my clients is take a step back from just making those assumptions of I need the VA or I need the OBM or I need a bookkeeper and ask like, who do you really need? Like if we really took a step back and we said, this is how you need to spend your time to grow your business and run your business, what's left? Like where are the areas that we need to kind of fill in the gaps and what person is the right, uh, has the right expertise for those that we could bring on as a contractor or bring on as you know a, a part-time person. And what's really interesting is most people are like, I need two people or I need three or I have one client who like literally I asked her that question, like what's the dream team? What are the roles? And she's like, five and she rattled them off exactly and we're like okay so that's how we're building so i think it's just really good to take a step back and ask yourself those questions the first part of that is really getting clear on your role and like what your like the people at clockwork would call it um, like your queen bee role or your zone of genius like there's all these labels for it i really think about like what are the things that i need to be freeing up my time to do that are going to serve my clients and grow my business so for me, that's content, like producing content, that's doing the client work, and that's doing collaborations like these. Like that's the three areas that I need, which means that all the other areas of my business are places that I can actually bring on experts as contractors or as a team to, um, to fill in those gaps again. So like for that example, the client who wanted five to kind of make this more tangible for you guys, she is, she runs a bookkeeping agency, she's like an accounting firm, and she wants it to be really small. Like she could scale this thing incredibly and she probably will over time. But right now she's like, it's a team of five. These are the only services. Like this is what we want, small and lean. So she needs a bookkeeper. She needs someone to handle taxes. She needs an admin ops person. She needs a marketing lead and then she needs herself. And that's it. Like that's, and that's something that she's grown into. This wasn't the team that she had in like the second month. This is the team that she has in year two. And what this is allowing her to do is go from like the low six figures to multi six figures in her business without working more, without becoming the manager and like just doing the things that she really loves doing and letting other people use their expertise and do the things that they love doing. And the business is running like this beautiful, well-oiled machine. So that's one example. Um, 
when I started my coaching practice, I was still in the, I'm a solopreneur. I do everything myself and quickly realized that if I wanted to work 25 hours a week and spend time with my kids and take care of my health, like that was not going to be the, the option that I could pursue. So I ended up hiring a pretty high level person. I ended up going, skipping over the VA and hiring an OPM because I knew that that was the role that I wanted to grow into. And so we started really small on a project basis and then she eventually joined my team. So now I have her as my OPM. There's a VA that works under her and there's a designer. And um, there are other people who she has on her team that I could bring on additionally if I ever wanted to. But that team of three has been incredibly powerful and has allowed me to like, last year I was able to more than double my business because of this team while just working 25 hours a week. So I think that's really helpful for people to hear because it shows you that with a small team you can scale and you can do it in a way that doesn't have you working all the time. So hopefully those examples are helpful. Jump in Susan. Um, I was going to share my example because it's similar to yours, but um, in kind of a different way. So I, like Ashley, have a very small team. Technically, it's just me. I'm the only employee of the company. Um, and I don't have any uh, contractors that I work with on a regular kind of retainer basis. And a lot of that is... So I, I hire, I bring in experts, but it's usually on a project basis. Like uh, I want to redo my brand or I need some help with a specific copywriting project um, and I don't feel like writing it myself or I've hired a copywriting coach. Um, so normally I am working with um, specific people on a project uh, for some sort of temporary kind of time frame. But what I've done is behind the scenes, almost all of my actual administration is driven by systems and technology that I very consciously put in place so that I don't have to do that. I don't have to hire somebody to do it. And also I don't have to remember to do it. I'm very much of, I don't, I don't want to have to remember to do anything. I just want to know that it's going to happen. And um, actually I spoke incorrectly. I do actually work with one contractor all the time and that is my podcast producer. Mm -hmm. um, so they are actually on retainer and they are producing podcasts as my main content. Um, but again, but <laughs> specialized expertise. Um, yes. And I love what you said about systems too. Like the reason I'm able to have such a lean team and the reason they don't need to work tons of hours to run my business or help me run my business is because we have these beautiful systems that allow not only me to do things more efficiently, but also them to do things more efficiently. Yes. Um, and so I, I think, you know, if you are, if you are making a conscious choice to say small, which you don't have to, um, <laughs> <laughs> if you want to grow a team, you can absolutely grow a team. And I think it's, it should be a conscious choice whether you want to grow a big team, whether you want to stay small, small and lean. Some of that has to do with, you know, you as a person, do you want to be a manager of people or a manager of managers, which is, you know, if you're thinking a traditional agency model and you are the founder of a, an agency and you have project managers and you have, you know, VPs and that kind of thing, you as the founder become a manager of managers, not anything else. So when you are thinking about, you know, do you want to grow a team? Do you want to stay small and lean? Some of that is think about what you want to do on a day-to-day -day basis. And if you like managing people or if you don't, um, because they are also two really different skill sets um, in our, you know, traditional career world. We uh, give very little training to people who are supervisors and usually promote them based off of them being good at the job, which doesn't necessarily make them good supervisors. Um, and we don't, there's not really a great mechanism for folks to learn how to be a good supervisor before they become a good supervisor. So that's just kind of some... <laughs> 
an aspect to think about when you're trying to make this choice of, you know, do you want to be a manager or do you want to actually just do your business and go about your life? Yeah. And I think like, like tying it back to the default decision, I think the really important thing is the checking that assumption of like, you can build a big team if that's what you want and that's what you love and that's what you want to do, but that shouldn't be the default decision, right? Like you shouldn't say the only way I can scale is if I have a big team because there are so many other alternatives. Yeah. I I mean, I have seen literally uh, probably a hundred different business models and different ways to scale um, and lean teams getting to a million dollars and uh, giant teams getting to a million dollars. For me, the difference really comes on the back end. Uh, You know, a lean, mean team that is um, very skill specific, very effective at doing what they're trying to do is super profitable. And when you have a really big team, your, your kind of benchmark for the revenue that you have to get to in order to make that profitable is so much higher. Yeah. Um, so for me, that was one of the decisions why I chose to stay small is because super profitable and yeah. it's very low risk. You know, I've had um, very capital intensive um, businesses before, like actual physical locations. And um, they're just so much riskier than lean and easily f- easily movable, very flexible, responsive, that sort of thing. Yeah. And my whole thing, like, I love to see people putting more money in their own pocket. Like, I like to see them supported yes. and freeing up their time. But like, if they're, like, in order to create the life they desire for themselves, I want to see their revenue looking really healthy. Yes. Yeah. So, well, we've touched about on this one for a long time. I'll let you go to the next one. So you know, it's gonna <laughs> no, really- we're both really passionate about that one, <laughs> I think. Um, so the next one is kind of assuming that the software tools that your buddy recommended are the best ones for your business and that your software won't change as your business changes. And the truth is that every business is unique because every founder is unique and every business model is kind of unique. So there's no like right stack. No, there's no right software mix for a specific business. And your buddy that is recommending Asana as your project management tool probably has no idea of the actual workflow that you're doing and whether or not that's actually a a good, efficient tool. Maybe it works for them and for their business, or maybe it's actually the only thing they know about and they just threw it out there. (laughs) And I, I mean, I see this happen all the time. That's how most folks, when they get into business, pick their technology is they're like, oh, so-and-so said QuickBooks was awesome, so I'll just use QuickBooks. Or, ooh, they said Trello. I hate it, but they said that's what I should use, and it doesn't at all work for me. <laughs> um, so really, you need to think about your software as an ecosystem. You know, it's all there designed to be a foundation of your business, particularly in an online business. Uh, usually, team is the number one expense, and software is the number two expense <laughs> if they are working remotely. Um, but it's there to support your business, to support your workflow, but it also needs to be customized to your workflow and your business and really how your brain works, how your team works. All of that should go into kind of the software that you're picking for your business. Um, so when most folks kind of, oh, just pick that one and then slap it on here. And then they get really frustrated when their software is just kind of a tangled mess of Christmas tree lights. Um, and, you know, as your business changes as your model business model evolves maybe you bring in a new revenue stream that requires new technology to administrate um, but a good rule of thumb is that kind of every time your team triples in size your operations will change so that doesn't necessarily mean that your systems have to if you pick really flexible systems at the beginning sometimes they can they can flex um, but that's kind of a general rule of thumb that i see that works so you know when you are just a one person shop 
you can get away with really, really simple tools because you don't have to tell anybody. Most of the stuff that you need to remember is actually in your head. You might, uh, you might be able to get away with Asana because it's just a reminder. Um, but when you start expanding your team into like two or three people, you then have to communicate what's going on with other people. You have to get what's in your head, out of your head, into something that they can actually execute. Um, and again, when you go from three people to six people, you know, three people, you can, you can hold it together over email pretty well. Um, but when you go to six people, keeping everybody in the loop is a totally different game changer. So just think about that, that as your business evolves, your systems are going to evolve as, as well. Um, and they should. And that, you know, your, your buddy who doesn't have a business who told you about this tool, maybe not the best person to actually recommend something that is a conscious best choice for your business. Yeah. So I'll like, and I also want to say that one thing that I see with people here is that they have systems that work really well for their business. And then they hear about something else and they assume that it must be so much better. And so they will spend like three weeks setting up new systems in their business without even needing to for maybe like a micro improvement. So I think that, yes, you should check your systems and yes, you should like, you know, as you grow your team or as your business model becomes more complex, like you should check and make sure that the systems are matched, but also you should make sure that you're not doing like systems fondling. Like I got to go jump to the next thing and request a planning. Yes. And like, <laughs> and I see my clients do it so often because I think, um, I attract a like, like a lot of like type A, I love organization. I love systems and tools type people. And I'm always like, let's make sure that it's a good match before you waste your time switching. Like you're really going to see the benefit. So I think that's the other assumption to check when it comes to systems and tools is just because I see this bright, shiny object over here. <laughs> is it really necessary? And is it really going to improve my operational capacity and my efficiency in my business to move forward? And if it is, then it's not a default decision. That's like discernment, right? And then yes, it's actually, it's then it's not, a conscious like, choice. Yes, exactly. And if it's <laughs> not, then you get to stay where you're at and, and save those, you know, all that headache of moving things. And I say this as someone who, you know, last year when my business really um, saw a jump in revenue and the team changed a little bit, we needed to change some systems as they took some more things on for me. And it was a month long process of moving things. And I'm so happy now that it's through and it was intentional and it was the best thing to do, but it was also, it was a month. <laughs> like, um, oh, it's, and a month is pretty fast to be, to be yeah. honest. A month is, is, it's pretty fast when you're talking about um, swapping systems. And usually where the benefit comes in is actually, um, you know, it's pretty incremental. Like you said, if you have a system that is working, um, oftentimes you're better off trying to work within the system. It's when mm -hmm. there's some big glaring like, oh, this is actually limiting our ability to communicate as a team, or this is literally the reason we can't uh, take on more clients or we can't serve more people. Um, but often what I see is that um, folks assume software is going to fix a problem and the issue is actually not having a process. The process mm -hmm. should inform the system, not the other way around. Um, at no point will a shiny new software tool fix your issue if you don't know what you're telling the software, you know, what are you trying to fix with that software. So I always recommend that people get really clear on what the, what is the problem that you're trying to solve? Make sure that the tool that you're using to solve that problem is the right tool. Um, but it should go process, then technology. 
not the other way around. And um, oh, and the other one that we were talking about is like when you evaluate your systems, I always kind of recommend that people do a software audit. So mm -hmm. kind of run through all of the software that you're using, how much it costs, kind of review them to see if uh, other tools, you know, other functionality has come out in the tools that you're using. Um, so once a year is usually more than sufficient. And usually the purpose of that is just to cancel anything you're not currently using and save some money. Yeah. And also just to like make your business run better, right? Like we did this in December and what turned out was like, I was paying for a tool that wasn't that much. It was like $300 a year or something, but I hated it. My team hated it. And it was cost us money. We moved to two free tools that my team loves. Now they handle all the client onboarding using these two tools and I'm saving myself $300 a month. But the bigger like value there is that it's so much more efficient and easier for us to mm -hmm. do it. So yes. Okay. Anything else you want to say on this one? No, I could go on forever. We're coming up on time here. So <laughs> we'll move. <laughs> um, so the big assumption we kind of teased this out at the beginning was that assuming that you need to grow more, you need to work more. And I think that we've touched on this at different points through this whole conversation that a lot of times that people are like, I want to scale my business. It's okay. How do I take on more clients? How do I build more hours? And a lot of times when I see when people are doing that, that's where they come to me and they're like, I am in burnout. I am in overwhelm. I'm overworked. Like this is not working for me. And as someone who wants people to have this business that creates a big, beautiful life for them, like that just doesn't sit well with me. So I always like to start, as you guys have noticed, I like to start with lots of questions. And the question here is like, how could I grow more without working more? And it's really interesting when you give your brain that question or you enter that conversation with a, you know, a coach and someone who can reflect back to you, how many interesting solutions can come up there? And sometimes it's about increasing your pricing, right? Like that's the obvious one that comes up is like, maybe I should just increase my pricing. And oftentimes, or I would say often, some of the times that makes sense. Like I do see people undercharging themselves and it's like, okay, it would make sense to bump your pricing up and right there, you've increased your revenue without working more. But often it can also be about um, changing your business model or about outsourcing some things that are not profitable uses of your time so that you can work the same amount of hours, but just use those hours differently. So um, on the business model front, like that client I was talking about, that's the copywriter, she went from done for you, like pretty standard prices for her done for you copywriting to a coaching model where she's able to serve more people in her course. So she gets, it's more profitable for her. It's not passive income, but it's more profitable. Um, she's doing these coaching intensives, so they're short term and it's more profitable. And she's working with people long term as a coach. And so again, more profitable, but she's working the same hours. She's actually still chosen and made that very conscious decision to keep done for you, but now she's doubled the price on it. So it's at a premium. So she's only doing that with people who are willing to pay the premium to do it. So that's completely changed her revenue potential without requiring her to work more. I think that's a really great example for me. Like I didn't really want to change the business model. I really love the one-on-one -on -one work. So the question was, um, like, what can I delegate? What can I outsource so I can work the same amount of hours, but just use those hours differently. So I realized I don't really love social media. Like I love writing the content, but the picking of the images and creating the graphics and all that stuff, I'm like, no, not enjoyable for me. So my team took that on. My team took on client onboarding. Like they took on a lot of these little pieces that were taking up my time, which increases my operational capacity to do more intensives every month or more one-on-one -on -one clients every month. Or what I've done this spring is added a new service that's allowed me to add like 10 more clients to my business in a really light service. I couldn't have done that working the hours that I wanted to work if I didn't delegate more and outsource more. So just changing the way that you use your time. So I think that can be really helpful. It might also be like going back to the systems and the automations. Like you might be bringing on um, some tools or software to help you free up your time so you can use more time for revenue generating work. 
but it looks different for everybody. The point I think I want to make here is that if you don't assume that you have to work more to grow more, then you see some possibilities that you may not have known existed. Yeah, I love that. I think there are so many triggers, different different triggers you can pull to uh, play around with how much money you're taking home. You know, there's you may not need to increase sales. Maybe you just need to be more efficient on the back end and reduce your costs there. Uh, eliminate unnecessary stuff you're doing. Um, maybe you can just stop doing something. <laughs> That's yeah. my favorite is like, do we actually need to do this thing that we're doing or could we just stop? Like, does anything happen if we stop doing this? Mm-hmm. Uh, so a good example of that is like invoicing. Does anything stop if there's not a person sending the invoice? No. <laughs> Having a computer send the invoice is actually better because nobody has to remember to do it. Uh, You get paid faster. So there's a lot of, um, oftentimes what I find is that, you know, we're trying to streamline or make things more efficient and um, in like later on in the workflow, when really the right question to ask is at the beginning, is this something we have to do at all? Um, And that can be really powerful in terms of just um, cutting wholesale out a whole bunch of time that you're spending, like your example with social media. Is this something that needs to get done? Yeah, but you don't have to be the one to do it. Literally just pick it up, take it off your plate and move on. And is it something that needs to be done at the volume that I was doing before? Social media is such a good example of the beginning of my coaching practice. It was like, let's give this lots of time, like lots of engagement, lots of posts. And over time, I've slowly like moved the needle back actually. So my team's just posting like three times a week or two times a week for me. And that is, it gets the same results. So like we're using less time and we're getting the same results. So it's a really smart way to balance things out. Um, I, I totally agree. I think that that can be a really great question. And I feel like when you ask clients, like, do you actually need to be doing this thing or could you be using it for a revenue generating activity? You can just almost hear like the pin drop. It's just dead silence. And they're like, oh, and it's that permission giving, right? Like you're talking about, like someone finally says, you don't have to do that thing. And they're like, oh, and I could use that time for something much more valuable for me. Yeah. Uh, a, a great example of this, like very early on in my business, I was, you know, very susceptible to that. I should be doing this. I should be doing this. I should be doing this. Like that's how I'm going to get clients. And um, yeah, one, uh, like a a friend was just like, but do you, you know, I'm like, I need to be posting on social media. I need to be collecting an email. Like I need to have an email list. I need to do all of these things. And um, the question like, but, but do you, is that where your clients actually come from? Are your clients even on social media? Um, And at the beginning of my business, the answer to that was actually no. So, you know, I'm almost four years in and I'm finally like, okay, now it's time for me to start thinking about those additional ways of bringing in clients because my systems of referral and um, all of those other systems are already kind of working behind the scenes. Okay, great. Now I can turn my attention to this thing that is going to have significantly less impact on actually on my business. Um, and now I have different goals. Um, so I think the question of like, is that really something you need to do is so powerful because it was so liberating for me to just be like, oh yeah, I don't, I don't need to do that. I'm just not gonna. <laughs> yeah. And the answer to that is either like everybody stops doing it or I personally don't need to get a person to do it and someone else on my small lean team can do that. If you want to connect with Ashley or learn more about what she does, you can find her at ashleygartland.com or on Instagram as at Ashley Gartland. But what I want to leave you with is this. Your decisions matter. They are the bricks that you stack to create what eventually becomes your business. And each decision you make in one area affects all the other areas of your business. 
because your business is an ecosystem. It's not a bunch of silos. And that's what we'll be talking about the rest of this month. How your decisions in each area of your business affect your business ecosystem. Next week, I'll be talking to Tamara Kemper from Process Mavens about how your decisions around your process affect your business ecosystem. So hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player so you don't miss it. Break the Ceiling is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Sean McMullen. This episode is edited by Marty Seafeld with production assistance by Kristen Rumbeck. <laughs>